Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 28. We are currently working through Genesis and in the middle of the Jacob story. Our sermon text will really focus on the second half of this chapter, verses 10 through 22, but we'll read the whole chapter for the context. Let's pray together before we read. Our Father, we do pray that you would come, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would humble and quiet our hearts, that you would enable us to hear your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would rebuke us, that you would correct us, that you would teach us, that you would train us, but above all, that you would point us to our Savior Jesus this morning. Help us to see him more fully and to rest in him more fully and to delight in him more fully this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham." Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Every human heart longs to meet with God. It's a longing we were born with and cannot fully escape. And we have other desires that conflict with that, don't get me wrong. Once sin entered the world, Adam and Eve hid from God's presence. We long to meet with God, and yet we are rightly terrified by his holy gaze. When Isaiah the prophet got a vision of God, the Holy One, high and lifted up, his immediate response was, woe is me. We also long to meet with God and yet want to insist on our autonomy. We simultaneously want to meet God and want to be him. And we often mute our longing for God by filling ourselves with the stuff of this age. We long to meet with him, and yet that longing is very mixed since the fall. But we still long. In fact, many long for the mountaintop experience, right? The, the supernatural encounter, the, the beatific vision, the sign from heaven, the audible whisper in our ear, our own private burning bush. And out of our longing, we sometimes get kind of creative. In Genesis 11, humanity sought to build a city with a tower, a tower that reached into the heavens. It was likely what we know today as a ziggurat. In fact, you can see one partially still standing and refurbished, if you Google ziggurat of Ur. Now Ur, by the way, is where Abraham was from, and this one in particular was around when Abraham was alive. Ziggurats are a human attempt to reach into the heavens. You build a man-made mountain, you put a temple on top, you create a stairway all the way up, and then you can literally, as it were, ascend into the heavens, the physical heavens at least. It's a, a technological solution for a spiritual problem. Now we're not tempted to make ziggurats today, but we have no less sophisticated techniques for seeking to reach the, the divine. Uh, those techniques range widely. Uh, some look to mind-altering drugs as a means to a spiritual experience. Others look to ritual and tradition and liturgy. If only I can enact the right ceremony, maybe I can get a glimpse of God. Others focus on moral deeds. If I can just be a good enough person, perhaps God will take notice of me. Uh, some of my boys and I recently watched the Percy Jackson TV series. And uh, there, these, uh, in that series, these so-called children of the gods are constantly trying to figure out new ways to get their parents, the gods, to take notice of them. We create all kinds of ladders, all kinds of stairways. Even correct theology can be a stairway we attempt to climb, to earn, to make our way into the presence of God. Anytime we think, if I can just do this right, I'll feel or I'll be closer to God. 
we're trying to create a, a solution, trying to create a ladder that we can climb to enter into God's presence. Now, some of us are just frustrated by all this because we don't know what that thing is. We too feel distant from God and we think the problem is we just haven't figured out the right technique. We haven't climbed the right ladder. We long to meet with God, but we feel far from him. Now, as we turn to Genesis 28, Jacob is an interesting character. He is sneaky, deceitful, and self-serving. He takes advantage in the previous chapter. He takes advantage of others' trouble. His brother's hunger back in chapter 25 and lack of self-control. His father's appetite and blindness in chapter 27. He is looking out for number one himself. He is not the kind of guy you would expect to meet with God. Or put differently, he's not the kind of guy of guy for whom you would expect God to meet. I don't know how to put that uh, in the correct grammar. But you wouldn't expect God to meet with him. After deceiving his brother and taking advantage of his father, Esau, his brother, is understandably ticked off. In fact, he's ready to kill Jacob, literally. So Rebekah, their mother, overhears Esau's plot and hatches a plan of her own to send Jacob away to protect her younger son from her older. She has Isaac send him away to Haran, all the while manipulating Isaac into thinking it was his idea, which begins Jacob's life in exile, on the run. And that is what this is for Jacob, his life on the run, in exile, from his homeland, fleeing for his life, escaping the murderous thoughts of his brother. Verse 10 simply says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. But there's quite a bit behind that seemingly straightforward statement. Jacob is on the run, fleeing for his life, alone, perhaps afraid, uncertain as to what the future holds. And verse 11 says he came to a certain place. It's a funny, vague kind of statement. Perhaps this place, mentioned in this way six times, is, is just too unimportant. It's nondescript until God shows up. God's presence will give it its significance. Otherwise, it doesn't even deserve a name at this point. It's just a certain place. Jacob comes to a certain place and stays the night there. The sun had set. The dark had come. There were no street lamps on the road to Haran. And so Jacob takes a stone, a stone of the place, and puts it under or perhaps at his head. It seems like it would be an odd kind of pillow. Uh, perhaps it means he sleeps with his head backed up to a rock, which I think I would prefer if I were going to sleep in the desert alone and exposed, right? So he sleeps probably with his back to a rock. And Jacob dreamed, and behold, a ladder. Jacob sees something coming down. And uh, the Hebrew scholars say that the phrase is placed toward the earth. That is, there's a ladder earthward. Um, that's important. Uh, the ladder doesn't extend up from earth to heaven, but down from heaven to earth. And it's probably not a ladder, of course, as we think of it, but a stairway. Again, probably something like a ziggurat, but this time its top really does reach into heaven. And Jacob sees angels, messengers of God, ascending and descending on this stairway, and behold, the Lord stood above it, or perhaps even beside it, right there next to Jacob. But whatever the case, the Lord is there in Jacob's dream. 
Jacob on the run, a fugitive from his own family, having left the threat of the known, heading toward the threat of the unknown, and God comes down to meet with him. He introduces himself. I am the Lord, the God of your of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And he begins to relay all the promises of land and children and blessing to the nations that God had previously given to Abraham. But most important of all, God gives Jacob the promise of his presence in verse 15. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob wakes up in awe. He knows this was not just a dream. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he's afraid. Of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he says in verse 17, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. What are we to make of this story? Well, here's the the big point. God draws near to his covenant children, therefore draw near to him. It's fairly simple. God draws near to his covenant children, therefore draw near to him. Uh, Covenant is just a a, a fancy biblical word for a special relationship, a, a formal binding covenant that opens the way to intimacy and joy like in marriage. Relationships, of course, have two sides. And what we will see this morning is that God draws near to his covenant children, therefore draw near to him. We are to reciprocate in this relationship. And we'll look at each half of that statement under three points each. You can see that in your bulletin. First, God in Christ draws near to his covenant children. What does that mean? Uh, First, God meets us in the mundane. Now, I might have said God meets us in times of crisis, and that is certainly true. We see that here. Jacob is on the run, fleeing for his life. God often meets his people when they are in dire need. In fact, God often seems to wait until the proverbial 11th hour, until it's too late. God waits until all hope of human help is lost so that we can't take the credit. So we're not confused about where our help comes from. And then God steps in. But also, Jacob's story, it really isn't so unique, is it? I mean, just watch any daytime talk show. Now, I don't know what's on anymore, but shows like Jerry Springer, right, show that that family drama is actually pretty normal. Parents playing favorites, that's pretty normal. Brother stealing from brother, jealousy, revenge, this is the stuff of everyday life in a broken world. Also, Jacob doesn't go to a special place. In fact, uh, we're only told the original name of the place as an afterthought later in the story. He's sleeping under the stars in a no-name place with nothing but a rock for a pillow, and there God shows up. So it's not really a special time, though it was certainly a hard time for Jacob. It's not a special place, though it will become special because of God's presence. Finally, Jacob doesn't do any special activities. He doesn't go through any rituals. He certainly hasn't stored up any moral merit. Uh, It's not that he's so good, he's such a great person that God decided to to meet with him. In fact, his activity is so not the point, he is inactive in the story. He's asleep. This is not about Jacob. God takes the initiative to come to him. Unlike the people of Babel, Jacob doesn't try to build a tower with its top in the heavens. 
And unlike many experienced seekers today, Jacob isn't trying the latest technique to feel God's presence. He's not searching for the right worship experience, whether emotional music or mystical liturgy. In fact, Jacob isn't looking for anything at all. He's not even seeking God, but God seeks after him. We can't manipulate God into showing up. Rather, God takes the initiative to meet us in the mundane. And we'll come back to that, but, but second, God promises his protecting presence. The angels are an interesting element of the story, aren't they? I mean, what are they doing ascending and descending the stairway? Josue and I were talking uh, earlier this week or two weeks ago, I can't remember, and, and both of us pictured this as an escalator, right? And the angels kind of arms crossed, listening to elevator music, tapping their toe as they go up and down this elevator or escalator. You know, why, why are they there? Why are they relevant to this dream? Angels point to God's powerful care for his people. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says about them in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14? The writer of Hebrews says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The role of angels is to serve the people of God. Jacob has a vision of angels, God's servants, ascending and descending. For what purpose? To serve for the sake of the people of God. These are angels punching in for their workday, coming down to serve Jacob. Now, the point is not to get fixated on angels. Scripture never focuses there but to know that God uses every resource available to fulfill his promises and protect his people. So when God then speaks to Jacob and gives him the covenant promises of land and seed and blessing, Jacob knows this God can come through. He is the Lord of hosts. That is the the hosts of heaven. The armies of heaven do his bidding. They come and go at his will. And again, most importantly, God says in verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God shows up in Jacob's dream and promises his presence to be with, to go with, to bring back. And so when Jacob wakes up, his first thought is surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't even realize it. Who knew? God is here. And Jacob is afraid and he marvels that this is, he says, none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. You may remember when we talked about the story of the Tower of Babel, Babel was meant to be the gate of heaven. At least so they thought. But God does not allow us to storm his presence by human effort. With the advent of human sin in Genesis 3, God removed humanity from his presence both because we had lost the right to it and because it was now dangerous for us. The way back into the garden is guarded. Not not to protect the garden, to protect us. But now God shows up. In verse 19, Jacob calls this hitherto unnamed place Bethel, which means house of God. And what made Bethel special was not a special time, nor a special place, nor special activities, but God's special presence. Surely the Lord is in this place. Now it deserves a name, Bethel. Now you might be thinking, okay, fine, it's an interesting story, but so what? 
What difference does it make if God met with Jacob? I mean, what difference does it make if Jacob had a vision of angels? Who cares? Of course, we want our own vision, right? Our, our own dream, our own encounter with God, our own mountaintop experience. How do I know that God will be with me? How do I know that God cares for me? How do I know that he will provide for me? Now, on the one hand, I, I, we, we might push back against that a little bit. Right? That we, we tend to look at life with ourselves at the center. But life is bigger than you or me, isn't it? God's purposes are bigger than you or me. Sometimes we need to know what God is doing in the world just to have a big view of what God is doing in the world. So our worlds don't get shrunk down to the size of our own experience. So we don't live little emaciated lives that revolve around self. God just wants us to have the big picture. Look at what I'm doing in the world. And yet there is a way that you can know, isn't there? How do we know that God will meet us in the mundane? How do we know that God uh, will promise us his presence? And that brings us to the, the, the third point, the third subpoint of the first point. God assures us in the gospel. And God promises Jacob in verse 14, in you and your offspring, your seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The apostle Paul in the New Testament says, this is the gospel. And Paul is referring to the promise given to Abraham, but it's the exact same promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared them righteous with God by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Right? The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How is that the gospel? In you shall all nations be blessed. That in Abraham and his offspring, the nations would find their blessing. How is that the gospel? Well, because Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. He is the offspring of Jacob. And Paul put it like this in Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one through whom all families of the earth will be blessed. And Jesus comes not to the place where God is, but as the place where God is. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Bethel, the house of God. He is the true temple, the gate of heaven. That's why Jesus said to Nathanael in John 1:51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus is the ladder. He is the stairway. He is the, the ziggurat. He is the path to the Father. Not so we can climb the ladder through morality or liturgy or emotionalism. He is the path to the Father because in him God came down to be with us. Jesus comes and like Jacob, he is in exile from his home. Jesus came to experience alienation and death with and for us. Jesus tasted the, the family breakdown so common in this life. His literal brothers thought he was mad. And his father turned his back on him at the cross. There was the true exile that none of us has yet experienced. 
and we won't have to experience it. Jesus came to experience exile from the Father for us in our place. He experienced that so we won't have to if we trust in him. But then Jesus rose from the dead. What, what no human effort or willpower could accomplish, God did in the resurrection. And then Jesus ascended back to the Father where he now sits at God's right hand. Scripture teaches that if you believe in Christ, you are in Christ, united to him like a bride to her husband. And so you are with Christ, seated at the Father's right hand, but it doesn't end there. Jesus then poured out his spirit so that he is with us. And do you remember uh, some of his last words to his disciples before Jesus ascended? He said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The same promise that God gives to Jacob here in Genesis 28, verse 15, Jesus gave to his disciples right before his ascension. And so you see, how, how do we know that God will be with us like he was with Jacob? How do we know that God will meet us in our moments of need? How do we know that we have his protecting presence? Well, Christ lost God's presence for a moment at the cross, that we would not have to know a moment without it. Christ entered God's presence in his ascension so that we in Christ would dwell in God's presence forever. And he would dwell with us by his spirit. See, Jesus, according to the Father's plan, has made certain that God can draw near to sinful, deceitful, scheming sinners like Jacob and like you and me. God in Christ draws near to his covenant children. What does that mean? It means God meets us in the mundane. God promises his protecting presence and God assures us of these things through the gospel. God is with you during your exile, your time away from Eden. You are not alone. God is with you through Christ and through his spirit. Therefore, draw near. God has drawn near to you in Christ. Therefore, draw near to him. Uh, look at the rest of the verses in this chapter, verses 18 through 22. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. It's, it's an interesting little section, and I, I have a few questions about Jacob. Uh, did he think that this stone would be God's house? I mean, what does that even mean? Uh, not likely. He, he's probably not saying God will live in this stone. Uh, he's saying that this stone would mark the place where God met with him. It would mark this place as a holy spot, a sanctuary, a place for worship. Uh, but there's a bigger question I have about Jacob's vow. He says in verse 20, if God will be with me and keep me and provide for me so that I come back again, then the Lord shall be my God. And some have wondered if Jacob is kind of continuing his shrewd business deal here. Is he hedging his bets? Is he saying, okay, God, if you keep your end, up, uh, end of the bargain up, then maybe I'll think about taking you as my God, right? Is he taking a kind of wait and see approach to what God has said? Uh, you can see why some people would think that this is the case because this is Jacob after all. 
right? That's his track record up to this point. His previous business deals have been cutthroat, taking advantage of first his brother, then his father. And so you think, surely he's, he's continuing his same uh, mode of operation. But I'm not so sure, actually. Uh, this if-then here, the way it's put, is actually the normal form of a vow in Israel. It's a pretty common way of putting things. Uh, one could intend it in a mercenary way, but one doesn't have to take it that way. Uh, There are always two sides to a covenant, God's part and the individual's. Even Abraham was told by God, walk walk before me and be blameless. So here God says, here's what I'm going to do, Jacob. I'm going to give you land and children and blessing, and I'm going to be with you as you go and, and with you as you return home again. And Jacob says, okay, if that's the kind of God you're going to be, if you're going to be with me, then you'll be my God. He's not waiting to find out if God will do these things. It's, it's, uh, he's saying, if this is true, or since, we would use the word since, since this is true, then you are the God I'm going to follow. There's a particular application here, I think, as, as we think about, you know, here's Jacob, uh, child of Isaac, grandson of Abraham. And there's a particular application to the children in the room of the things that I'm about to say, right? If, if you're a kid in the church and you have Christian parents, you're, you're in a position similar to Jacob. God was the, the God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. And God promises now to be his God. But Jacob needs to own that. And if you grew up in the church, you need to own that. That begins with trusting that Jesus died for your sins. And now knowing that because of Jesus, God will keep his promises to you. And then it continues with you following God, doing all that Christ commanded, walking in his ways as Jacob is promising to do. Now, even if there was any doubt in Jacob's mind as to whether God would keep his promises or not, there should be no doubt in ours. God did bring Jacob back from his exile in Haran. But even better, God brought back Jesus from the grave. Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus has guaranteed God's presence for us. And God now invites us to be his covenant partners in Christ. He has done all that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. But what does it look like then for us now to walk in that? What does it look like for us to draw near to God now that he has drawn near to us in Jesus? Well, let me mention just three things. Look up use the means, and offer yourself. So first, look up. Uh, We've read this verse, I think, uh, at least twice in this passage already, in the the, uh, service today already. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You see, Jacob, Jacob saw a ladder coming down. God says, if you belong to Jesus, you have been raised up with Christ. You don't have to climb that ladder. You are already at the top. We want a mountaintop experience. God says, you are raised and seated with Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is, this is better than a mountaintop. You are seated with Christ at the Father's right hand. Now, you may not feel different, You don't have a vision of angels ascending and descending, but this is true of you if you are a Christian. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. 
How? Because you are united to Christ by faith, joined to him by his spirit in you. It is a spiritual but very real union. And so Paul says, again, Colossians 3, 1 to 2, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You know, we so often fill our minds with earthly things, things that may be good in and of themselves, but what are you filling your mind with? What are you setting your eyes on? If you consider Jesus, the risen and ascended Lord, if you let thought of him fill your mind, direct your decisions, sway your heart, that will change the way you see life. Suddenly you will be saying, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Whatever your situation, you'll realize God is at work here. He hasn't abandoned me. I'm not alone in this. In the midst of my exile, my loneliness, my hardship, my trial, my trouble, broken relationships, dysfunctional families, God is here. He is at work. He will bring me home. He will put things right. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. That's fine. He's wise, but in his timing. And so I wait for him. Remember who is on the throne. Remember what that means for you. Second, use the means. God has drawn near to us in Jesus. We can now draw near to him. What does that look like? How do we draw near? And Jacob called the name of that place Bethel, the house of God. Later, God would have Israel create a house for his name, the temple. And there God met with his people. If you wanted to meet with God, you knew exactly where to do it. You just went to the temple in Jerusalem. It was simple. But then comes Jesus. And he says to a woman at Jacob's well in John 4, 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The days of place-based worship are over. Rather, now we worship the Father in spirit and truth. And in the context of John, that means we worship in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus, who is the true temple. He is the reality to which everything pointed. But you may think, okay, well, that doesn't help me understand how I now draw near to God. In the Old Testament, there was a place, the temple, and certain rituals, the sacrifices and offerings. There was a, a language for the relationship, rules for the dance, so to speak. What now? And the answer is that while the elaborate ceremonies of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus, God doesn't leave us on our own to figure out how to relate to him. He gives us what in theology we call the means of grace, we might even call him the means of communion with our God. He claims us as his own by his sign of baptism. He speaks to us through his word. He welcomes us to his table in the Lord's Supper. And we respond to him in prayer and in praise, dialoguing with the king of heaven through the means of grace. This is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We draw near to the throne of grace through the means of grace that God has given. And that's not normally a, a vision from heaven. There's no visible angels ascending and descending, no audible voices, no signs. God meets with us in the mundane. God's work with Jacob was spectacular, but of course at that point God was still working out his plan to send Jesus and save the world. 
that part of God's purposes are complete. Now comes the, the routine, the, the, the regular, the, the long normal part of any relationship. When you grow deep in the mundane through what we call the ordinary means of grace. So look up to heaven where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. Know that you are there even now. Take heart in that. Let that give you a big picture of what God is doing. Know that whatever troubles and trials you face, they can't reach you there. Second, use the means, the ordinary means of grace to approach the throne of grace in the midst of your need of grace. Third, offer yourself. Jacob responds to God's grace. He consecrates a stone, he confesses the Lord, and contributes a tithe. And we can do the same, except we don't need a stone to represent God's house. Now that Christ has risen and sent his spirit, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, back in verse 3 of chapter 28, Isaac said that Jacob would become a company of peoples. That word company is the Hebrew equivalent of the word church. In fact, I think it's the first time the word appears in Scripture, though don't quote me on that. Uh, But eventually, Jacob would become a church of peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The church is the temple. We consecrate our lives. That means we, we set them apart for God's purposes. We confess that the Lord is our God, and Jesus Christ is the Lord. Do you confess Jesus to yourself, to your neighbors? Do you claim him as your God? We contribute. The Old Testament rule of the tithe is is no longer binding. That's part of the ceremonial purposes of the law. But the principle that we must give both to God and his work in the world and to his people who are in need, that principle remains. A tenth is is as good a number as any. While some may need to give less, many in our wealthy age should give more. But the point is that we are each to give according to what we have so that we can contribute to God's work of extending his house, his temple, his church to the ends of the earth. And so if you believe in Jesus and have consecrated your life for his purposes, do you consciously seek to offer your life, your moments, your days for his work and for his glory? Do you confess his name? Do you own Jesus out loud as your God? Do you contribute to God's work in the world? Are you willing to give of your time and your talents and your treasure for God's purposes? We must not see these things as ways that we placate God. No, he has drawn near to us. And now he invites us to draw near to him, to come alongside him in his work by offering ourselves, speaking of Jesus and supporting the work of God in the world. As we do that, we, we join God in his work. He has drawn near to us in Christ, drawn near to him. And as we do that, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to understand the words of Jesus that he is with us always. Help us to understand the the mystery that we are raised and seated with him at your right hand. Help us to understand the hope we have of Christ's return and of all things being made new on the last day. Help us by your spirit to understand these things and to walk in them in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.